A reading from Genesis 38, verses 11 through 19 and 24 through 30. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Russ, for reading that passage for us this morning, that long passage, that complex passage. It's good to see you all. If we haven't met, my name is Russ Ramsey, and I'm the pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church Cool Springs, and we're starting our sermon series on Advent this Sunday, which is a sermon series focused on the women, uh, particularly the women in the genealogy of Christ and then key women who were in the life and ministry of Jesus. And we're starting here with Tamar, who is in Matthew's genealogy, Matthew 1, verse 3. And uh, so we're just going to get into it. But before we do that, um, Joe took credit for not having the words to the prayer uh, on the slide. That was my bad, not his. Um, and I can't let that stand. So that, that's on me. Um, also... Before we get into this, uh, I was given a gift this morning uh, by Tony Funderburg, 
Um, and it's this, sorry, Tony, I mentioned your name. I know you probably didn't want me to do that, but it's for a reason. Uh, he gave me this, this vial of nard perfume. And so if you were here uh, during the um, dedication service last Sunday night, uh, the little homily that I gave really focused on the nard perfume that was used to anoint Jesus' feet. If you're curious about what it smells like, um, I have some right here. So after the service, you can come and you can take the cap off and you can smell it. It's got a little rollerball on it, so you can put some on your wrist if you would like uh, to do that. Do not steal it or God will judge you. Okay? All right, this whole place is going to smell like, like nard in a little bit. I'm excited about that. All right, so thank you for the gift. Um, okay, I want you to picture something from the nativity. Picture the wise men, uh, the learned men from the east, and they're following a star. Can you, can you see it? They're, they're following this star. I want you to picture that star. Let's assume it was a real star or it was a comet uh, and not just a vision that they were having, but it was a real celestial body of light that was putting off light. So way off, way off in the cosmos, hundreds of thousands of miles away, if not millions of miles away, larger than anything that we can conceive of, there's this object, and it's giving off light that the people in the West Asian desert could see with the naked eye, and they perceived that it was moving. And the reason it was moving is because the one who hung it there in the sky was moving it around like a master pushing a chess piece across the board of heaven. Now imagine a, a widow, a woman, alone in a desert, twice widowed, living in a cruel world that has beaten her down, that stripped her of any social power that she might have. And she's waiting, dressed as a widow, waiting on a promise to be fulfilled, a promise made by someone that she suspects has no intention of fulfilling. And the days pass, seasons pass, and she's just there. An adult woman, twice widowed, in her father's home, waiting. People around her die. Other people are born. And she's there, in the desert, alone. And she's like that star in that she's just this tiny pinpoint of light out there. What if there was a connection between that smoldering wick of a woman and that star galaxies away that was being positioned to lead the wise men to the foot of the Savior of the world? What if in all her hopelessness and in all of her hurt, God knew her name and planned to preserve her and her name for all time 
by tying one of the saddest stories in the Bible to one of the most joyful. And what if part of the point of all of this is to teach us the ways of God? What if, as Martin Luther said, this passage is given to us to challenge our despair? What if God redeems and restores sorrow? Tamar was a Canaanite. Canaanites did not know or fear the Lord. Her people were an idolatrous nation. They were a warring people. They were a culture of licentiousness, temple prostitutes, and men who had no moral qualms with any of that. Judah, on the other hand, he was the son of Jacob. He was the grandson of Isaac. He was the great-grandson of Abraham himself. He was raised to know and to fear the Lord. I mention this to locate our characters on the map, to note what we should expect of the principal actors in this story, because I think it would be unreasonable to expect Tamar to know about or to follow the statutes of the Lord, but not so for Judah. In this story, we don't find, in this relationship between Judah and Tamar, we don't find the Canaanite becoming like the heir to the covenant of God. What instead we find is the covenant heir becoming like a Canaanite. That is to say, we can have empathy for Tamar, because although she behaves in a sinful way according to the statutes of the Lord, which would later be revealed in Scripture, she does conduct herself very much as what she is, a Canaanite. But Judah willfully rejected the Lord, and he chose instead the life of a Canaanite. He married into the Canaanite world with all of their licentiousness and all of their idolatry. He just married in. This passage, it's a disturbing passage. It comes to us actually in the middle of Joseph's story. So it's sort of like Joseph's story is being told and then there's this, this kind of flashback. And it's a flashback that can be so troubling that one commentator, H.C. Leopold, described this text as, quote, entirely unsuited to homiletical use. <laughs> In other words, he was saying, don't preach on this passage. <laughs> but we should preach on this passage because what does it do? It tells us about the world. It tells us about the world into which Joseph was born. It tells us about the world into which Tamar was born. It tells us about the world into which we are born. And it's a world of sorrow that we need addressed. It tells us about Judah who married into a cult and in the process of doing that distanced himself from God and the fallout of that is his life became a wreck. And we could simply infer that the point here is if you don't follow God, your life is going to be hard. And while that may be true, 
there's a deeper principle here. And it's this, the effect that Judah's abandonment of God had on his life is sad. He, he had to become like a Canaanite. In other words, he had to keep his head on a swivel. He had to watch his back. He had to seek to exploit people for his own gain while avoiding being exploited by others in the process. He had to learn to live this way. He chose a path that had no moral moorings, no code of ethic, no standard of righteousness. It was a kill-or-be-killed world that he went into, and it made him into the person that we find here, a liar, a massager of the truth, a manipulator. It drew that out of him. The Judah that we find in this passage is an unfaithful man. That's the person that we meet, bringing pain upon pain into Tamar's life. So I'm going to tell you the story that Russ read in, in as plain a language as I can, and then make a couple points of application. So Judah, who was one of the sons of Jacob, he had a son, his firstborn son, and his name was Ur. You can read about this in the verses and chapters before. And Tamar became Ur's wife. But Ur was a wicked man, and the text says, so the Lord put him to death. Judah told his second son, Onan, to assume his brother's responsibility in providing children for the family. But Onan, who seemed to regard Tamar as the reason why his brother died, refused to allow a child to be conceived, and so he also died. And so Judah told Tamar, Tamar who had married into his family, who had now been married to two of his sons, we don't know exactly how long this period of time had been, but for years, he tells Tamar, go back to your own father's house. Leave this home and go back where you came from and live there as a widow until Judah's youngest son, Shelah, is old enough to marry and when he, when he is, Judah says, then I will send for you and you can marry my third son. That had to sound amazing, right, to Tamar. This is a hard world. It's a hard world that she's in. And so that's what he does. He sends this twice-widowed Tamar away to wait and to hope that he might return for her. And she's suspecting he's probably never going to come. And years pass, and Shela grows up, and Judah doesn't come for her. And then the text tells us Judah's wife died, and he went to seek the comfort of the carnival of the shearing season. So the shearing season was a very festive time. It was a festival, and people would go, and they would party, and they would celebrate. And so in, in, in response to his grief, perhaps, or his, just his, his wickedness, he, he decides to go and be a part of the carnival. And when Tamar hears that Judah is going to be there, she changes into the veil and the dress of a shrine prostitute. And she sits at the city gate and she waits for him. And when he comes along, he sees her and thinking that she's a prostitute, he propositions her. 
and she asks his price, and he offers a young goat, which he didn't have on him at the time, and so she asks for collateral, for a pledge. And he says, okay, what would you like? And she says, I want your signet and the cord and the staff to which it's attached. I want your signature. That's what a signet is. And so after their encounter, Tamar goes back home and she changes back into her widow's clothing. And a few months later, she's found to be pregnant. And the word gets back to Judah and Judah is mad. He's mad. Why? Because this is his daughter-in-law who is betrothed to his third son, his only remaining son, because the other two died, as far as he's concerned, because they were married to her. And now she goes and is immoral and breaks the betrothal? He's incensed. And so is Tamar's community. And they accuse her of being this immoral woman, and he's offended that she would dare tarnish his reputation, even though he had no intention of keeping his promise to bring her out of the lonely, futureless world of a widow. And so he says, bring her out and let her be burned. And they went for her. And this is when Tamar plays her hand. She sent the signet and the cord and the staff to Judah with this message. The man to whom these things belong is the one who got me pregnant. Deal with him too. And Judah realizes that he has been outmatched by this woman that he had marginalized. And he says, she's more righteous. She's more righteous than I because I didn't give her my son like I promised. And we could look at that and say, she got him. But she's still pregnant with twins from her father-in-law. And that's a reality that she's living in. And when these sons are born, Zerah sticks his hand out first, and the midwife ties this cord around his wrist to mark him as the firstborn. But then he withdraws his hand, and Perez comes out. Perez's name means breach. And he comes out first taking the birthright of his brother in a a breach. And this is the world they live in. And so Zerah lives as the son who lost his status to a brother whose name basically means I took your status. There's so much sadness in this story. And when we consider the implications of the narrative details that are offered here, we just see it. We see sorrow upon sorrow brought on by the brokenness of this world. And we're not untouched by this brokenness or this sadness either. Some of us, Frederick Bigner said, we don't just live in a world, but a world lives in us. In a room like this, I'm telling this story And some of us are playing back our own experiences that seem to tie directly to what's happening here. Abuse, control, denigration, abandonment. There's so much sadness here. No one chooses to be born, but this world can be so harsh 
that it can leave people wondering, what is this all for? Why in the world would we kick off the Advent season with a passage like this? Well, isn't this supposed to be a season of sentimentality, of families coming together, of joy, right? The singer Bruce Coburn made the observation in one of his songs that it's hard to live. Eugene Peterson added, we're not exempt from hard times. That difficulty is compounded by the reality and the fallout of sin. And this is a story about sin. Specifically how one sin usually leads to another sin. And how layered sin is often found out at some point eventually. That rejecting righteous living comes with consequences. But we've got these characters. They're like people out of a Cormac McCarthy novel, and the question that it raises for us is, who will rescue these people? The maker of stars will. The maker of stars will. God brings forth from this terrible situation eternal good. Tamar and her son Perez are named... In the lineage of Christ, what does that mean? It means that from the depths of human suffering, Christ was born. And for that same suffering, he lived. Woven into the genealogy of the Christ by way of these names is this world's brokenness. Commentator Robert Candlish said that in his genealogy, Christ should be mixed up with human sorrow and human sin is a fitting type of his being when he comes, a man of sorrows, a friend of publicans and sinners, calling not the righteous but sinners to repentance. Martin Luther said that he believed one of the reasons this passage is included in scriptures to challenge our despair so wherever you're feeling hopelessness and despair, this passage is to challenge that. There's nothing God can't work through. Here's what Luther wrote. He said, the church of God has great need for these examples. For what would become of us? What hope would be left for us if Peter had not denied Christ and all the apostles had not taken offense at him? And if Moses and Aaron and David had not fallen Therefore, God wanted to console sinners with these examples and to say, if you have fallen, return. For the door of mercy is open to you. See, the maker of the star that guided the Magi to Bethlehem looked upon the sorrow of a powerless woman in the desert of Canaan and from her, carried forward a line of redemption that remains unbroken. Now this might prompt you to ask, does this mean I have to wait for the life to come to see my burdens lifted? To see my sorrows eased? To see my wounds healed? In a sense, yeah. Yeah. 
of course. That's what it means. We have no reason to think that Tamar's life got a whole lot better after this passage. Does that disappoint you? Remember, and I really want you to hear this, remember that when we're looking to the life to come as a response to our present sorrow and suffering, we're not just talking about a modest improvement. We're talking about the restoration of all that is broken in this world. Though our longing for that day might feel forever away and impractical for the suffering that we feel right now and we might be tempted to wonder what good it even does us to pine for that, remember that we're not talking about a minor improvement. We're talking about a perfect improvement and an eternal one. In other words, we should ache for that day. We should ache for it. That said, let's also see the grace of the maker of stars at work in our lives even now. See what he has made. We live in the same world as Tamar, but we also live in a different world. We live in a world where there's infrastructure. We live in a world where we have things that Tamar didn't have. We have things like sanitary living conditions and legal protections. But even more than that, though Tamar didn't have scripture, we do. Though Tamar didn't have the local church, we do. Though she didn't know how the Lord would redeem this broken world through the sacrifice of his own son, who, by the way, would descend from her very womb, we do. During Advent, we celebrate we celebrate the revelation of what once was hidden. Something Tamar had no chance of seeing or understanding. But we see, we see through a glass darkly, but we see. God's plan to redeem the world through Christ of the line of Tamar. Don't take his mercy for granted. Instead, cast yourself upon him, and may your celebration of Christmas be marked by your worship of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, there is no whitewashing a story like this. There is no talking about the sorrow and the abuse and the misogyny and the desecration of Tamar by Judah. We just lean into it and we see the ugliness of it. And yet when we come to Matthew and we see the genealogy, we see not just that Tamar was somehow involved in the lineage of Christ, but we see that her name is preserved, that her name is recounted, not as a woman who is being used and held to a double standard, but as somebody who is in the historical line 
of the family of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you because it does challenge our despair. Knowing that Tamar's life was probably a difficult one to the end, and yet what you have been doing through time and space to redeem and to restore, she was a part of, and all of her sorrows have been eased. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. As we go into this holiday season, protect us from reducing Christmas to sentimentality. Protect us from reducing these holidays to merely an opportunity to gather with family and friends. And help us to remember what it is that we're celebrating. We're celebrating the birth of the incarnate Son of God who was born for the purpose of laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice to reconcile us to yourself. That this is how you have moved in time and space. So we thank you, O maker of stars and rememberer of names and consoler of sorrows. We thank you for your mercy. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.